Now we are reading this morning from the prophet Zechariah. If you've got your Bible there, right at the end of the Old Testament, the last but one book, is the prophet Zechariah. Uh, God willing, we'll be in Zechariah both uh, now and this evening as well. And we're in chapter 4 this morning. The book of the prophet Zechariah and chapter 4. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes, from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And may God speak to us through his word this morning. Well, it is good to be with you again on the, the Lord's Day. And uh, God willing, we'll look this morning and this evening at uh, two passages in the prophet Zechariah. Uh, looking this morning at chapter 4, as we read earlier, Focusing our thoughts around verse 6, but looking at the, the chapter as a whole, verse 6, which is probably about the only verse that most people know in Zechariah, that wonderful promise, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. wonder how we're all feeling this morning. How are we feeling spiritually? Are we feeling... Things are great, things are going well, I'm rejoicing, I'm on the mountaintop. Or are we feeling somewhat discouraged? Are we feeling maybe we're on a plane and we're just going along the same level and not really going very far? Or are we feeling discouraged? Do we feel that in fact we are stale and we are dry and we're even going backwards? It's easy to be discouraged about our own spiritual life. And we don't see that we are perhaps making the progress that we wished we were making. And we are feeling that 
well, I'm stale. Maybe I'm doing things because I've always done things this way. Are we discouraged as we look at the state of the church? We can look at the state of the church locally and see how few people there are even today in a town like Gorsainen who will even think of going to a place of worship. A huge, huge minority. We can look at the state of the church in Wales and say, Lord, what's happened? This church in Wales that once over a century ago uh, was vibrant, was full, and the whole land was singing your praises. And what's happened, Lord? What's happened? We look at the state of the church in the world. And we look at all the persecution going on. All the dreadful things that Christians are suffering around the world. And we can so easily say, Lord... What's going on here? What's happening? And it's so easy to be discouraged. And when we are discouraged, that does certain things to us. It brings us fear. It brings us anxiety. It brings confusion. It brings sadness. It can bring apathy. It can bring doubt and all these and many other things. Well, I say that Because that was the situation of the man mentioned in this chapter, Zerubbabel. He was a man at this time who was suffering from big discouragement. And I want us to look this morning at how he was encouraged by God and how we too may be encouraged if we are feeling in any way discouraged. You may well not know who Zerubbabel was, not one of the main figures in the, in the Old Testament, but important to know a little about this man who's in the center of this passage. So Rubabel was the governor of Judah immediately after the exile. You remember the Jews had been taken into exile in Babylon, Jerusalem had been destroyed, they were there for 70 years, they then were allowed to return to Judah, were allowed to start rebuilding the temple and establish themselves again, and Zerubbabel was their first governor, and he was rightly appointed, because he was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, the king before the exile. And his main job was to oversee the rebuilding of the temple. Remember that when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in 586 BC, they completely destroyed the temple, and they took all that was in it of any value over to Babylon, so there was nothing left. And Zerubbabel was given the momentous task of overseeing the rebuilding of that temple. So, they returned in the year 537 BC. And very quickly, they laid the foundations of the temple. And they started work on it. They started building it. But after a few years, the work stopped. The people gave up. The people couldn't see they were actually making very much progress. They had all sorts of problems, as we'll see a little later, all sorts of enemies that were trying to stop them building the temple. They didn't have much in the way of resources, and they gave up. By the time we come to Zechariah 4, we're in 520 BC. So a quick bit of maths tells you they went there in 537, it's now 520. 17 years have passed. And there is no sign of the temple being rebuilt. And yet that was Zerubbabel's responsibility. He was discouraged. Would that temple ever get rebuilt? How would it ever get rebuilt? Is it possible? 
And it's in that situation that God spoke to him through the prophet Zechariah and spoke those words in verse 6 that totally transformed him. Verse 6, we read, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So it was a personal word to him. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Why was that so important? Because what it did to Zerubbabel was this. It showed him that the obstacles to rebuilding the temple wouldn't be overcome by normal means, might or power, but by the work of the Spirit of God. It was God's work to see that that temple was rebuilt. The workers were co-workers with God, and God's Spirit would see to it that that would be completed. It doesn't depend on their might, doesn't depend on their power, doesn't even depend on their resources. God will see to it. Suddenly, for Zerubbabel, discouragement turned to encouragement. It's as if the penny dropped. Ah, I get it. It doesn't depend on me that that temple is going to be rebuilt. It depends on God. And God will see to it. It is his work. He will see to it. They were living, as verse 10 says, in the day of small things. Not very much was happening. All sorts of problems there. But the promise in verse 10 was the day of small things would turn to rejoicing. Do you see what happened to Zerubbabel? The moment God revealed to him that it was his work, it encouraged him and took away the discouragement. I wonder sometimes, do we feel that the future of any particular church depends on us? Depends on the pastor, depends on the elders, depends on the Sunday school teachers, depends on each one of us who may be here. And sometimes we look at it and say, if this work is depending on me, how are things going to change? How are things going to get better? How are things going to improve? And we can get discouraged when we think, well, we're not making very much progress. We're not seeing very much happen. Our problem is we're looking purely on the horizontal level. And what God says is, look up, look vertically, look to me. The church is my work. You are my co-workers. That's a huge privilege and responsibility. But ultimately, God says, I will build my church. It is his work. So that's the context that we're looking at here in Zechariah chapter 4. Let's look first of all at the message, verses 1 to 6. The message that Zechariah brought. Now, you may not know a lot about Zechariah. The main thing we need to know about him is that God spoke to him primarily in visions. Now, God speaks to people in in different ways. And for some people, God will speak in visions. And that's the way he spoke primarily to Zechariah. In the prophecy, there are eight different visions that Zechariah had that God revealed to him. And this is the fifth of them. This is the vision. See if you can imagine it in in your mind. The vision was of a golden lampstand. There was a bowl on top of it that had seven lamps going around it. There were seven lips on each lamp. Remember in the Bible, seven is the number of perfection or completion. Either side you had an olive tree. 
And these olive trees were connected to the lamp, and they were providing oil for the lamps. Now, Zechariah would have been very familiar with the lampstand. You know, the, the menorah in the temple, that seven-branch lampstand that was a symbol for the Jews of the Messiah who was to come. So it was important in the temple that that menorah was burning was a light 24 hours, day and night. Because that was the symbol of their hope. The Messiah is to come. It was never allowed to go out. So you always have priests on duty to make sure there was enough oil for that lamp to keep burning. But what we see here is the light in this vision would never go out because it was linked to the oil from the olive trees on either side, continually giving oil, so the lamp will continually be shining. There's a constant flow of oil to the lamp. What's the symbolism here? Oil in the Bible is very often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The lampstand is often used, particularly in the New Testament, as a picture of a church. Think of Revelation 1 to 3 and the seven churches and the lampstands there. This vision is all about light. So what it's all about is the task of God's people, nowadays the church, is to bring the light of God, specifically today the light of Jesus, into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And if we were to say, what are we about as a church? The answer from this chapter would be to bring the light of Jesus into the world where God has put us, into the community around us, that they too may see him, know him, and trust in him. And in that context, the key verse is verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Because we can't do this on our own. We can only do it in God's strength. And as Zerubbabel needed the Spirit to complete the work of building the temple, so we need the Spirit for our task of bringing the light of Jesus into the world. That really is the message that Zechariah is giving here. But moving on, secondly, we can see the mountain, verse 7. Immediately having given that promise, uh, God goes on like this in verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Now, what's he talking about here? He's not talking about a physical mountain. There are mountains in Israel, but that's not what he's talking about. Zerubbabel was facing mountains of problems. He was very discouraged. Everything was getting on top of him. The people were discouraged and had given up. There were enemies all around who were doing their best to make sure the temple never got built. They were having very poor harvests. Their economy was in a real mess. And the people were not serving God and following God as they should have been. And his big overwhelming problem, how could he ever finish rebuilding the temple? He had this mountain of problems to face. And in many ways, aren't those similar to the kind of problems that we face in building God's church today? Problems from both Christians and non-Christians. From Christians, discouragement, 
Oh, we're not seeing anything very much happen. God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. What's the point of keeping on? Discouragement can lead to apathy. Why do we still bother? We're not going anywhere. What's going to happen? From non-Christians, opposition, complete ignorance. From Christians, disobedience, all of these things that we can see. And they can so easily bring us down. John Stott, a number of years ago, once said this. He said that the Christians' chief occupational hazards, listen to this, are depression and discouragement. Maybe that's not what we expect, is it? The Christians' chief occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. Why? Because the devil will see to it that those things will come to Christians. But put against that something that George Whitfield once said. He said, never let us despair while we have Christ as our leader. So Stott is saying, yes, you will have discouragement. You may even have despair in the Christian life. But let's, sorry, you have discouragement and depression. Get it the right way around. Let it never turn to despair. Because remember that Christ is our saviour, our leader, and our teacher. So Zerubbabel, in many ways, was facing the kind of problems, the kind of attitudes that we still face today. And he was living, as verse 10 says, in the day of small things. And he was well aware of it. But look at the promise. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. What's he doing? He's measuring the temple. He's erecting it, putting it up. The day of small things shall turn to days of rejoicing. And remember verse 6 is in that context. In the context of the day of small things, God says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it is by my spirit. You see, it's in the day of small things that God will often act. In God's purposes, small things can become big things. We see it, don't we, in the, in the natural world. Where we live, we've got um, several oak trees around uh, where we live, around our garden. And the last couple of years, the oak trees have gone absolutely mad. They've gone berserk and producing acorns. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And they're going all over our lawn. And my wife was getting so worried, we're going to have great big oak trees growing out of our lawn in a few years' time. Because those little acorns can produce great big oak trees. So I was given the task of collecting as many acorns as I could off the lawn. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Couldn't get them all up. Because that little acorn can produce a huge big oak tree. We see it in rivers, don't we? Go up to Plinlimon outside Aberystwyth and there's a tiny little spring there. Come to the Severn Bridge and you've got that great big wide river Y. 150 or so miles later, what's happened? That little spring has become a huge wide river. What happens in the natural world can also happen in the spiritual world. Let me give you a few examples from the Bible and from church history of how small things became great things. Think, how did the exodus from Egypt start? The greatest event probably in the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament. Set free from their slavery and back to Canaan. 
It started with the baby in the basket. Think of the greatest period in their history, the time of, of King David and, and King Solomon, uh, when they had the greatest empire they ever had, and they knew prosperity and they knew wealth and they, they knew peace after a while, and a great period in their history began with a shepherd boy and a sling. Think of Paul. Paul's great missionary work would not have happened without a basket and a rope to allow him to escape from Damascus. Think of that great event in church history. 500 years ago, the Reformation with Martin Luther. The Reformation, that which so transformed the church, started with a notice on a church door. Think of the modern missionary movement, which really started with a shoemaker, William Carey, boarding a ship to India. And without wishing to simplify it too much, Think of the Welsh Revival of 1904, which you might well say started with one man praying, O Lord, bend me. Small things in God's providence can become great and blessed things. So let's not be discouraged by living in the day of small things. Remember that God delights in bringing great things from small things. The mountain. So we've seen the message. We've seen the mountain that Zerubbabel was facing. Thirdly, the method. How is this to happen? How is Zerubbabel to build the temple? And how are we to help build the church? Again, the answer is in verse 6. Not by human strength, but by the work of the Spirit of God. Not by might, not by power. Now, in English, those words are pretty well synonyms, aren't they? They really mean the same thing. But in the Hebrew, they are different. The word might refers to the strength of many, like the strength of an army. The strength of many people working together is might. Power refers to the strength of an individual, one person in their own strength doing what they can do. Now, both are limited in what can be achieved. But when you come to buy my spirit, that is limitless, because it's the work of God and not of man. Now, in some ways, this reflects how we can go about building the church, go about the work of God. We can try and do it in the strength of of one person. And sometimes we can say, oh, this is our, our pastor's responsibility. Uh, and if we get a, a fine pastor and someone who's going to attract the people and someone with a great personality and someone who's really able, then, then that's going to work uh, and that'll fill the church. The strength of one man. Power. No, it won't. Or we might say it's by might. It's by everyone working together. It's by getting everyone together and everyone doing what they can and everyone 100% flat out serving the Lord. Then the church will grow. Yeah, these two can work to some extent. But what's the third area? Depending on the work of the Spirit of God. Now, those three are not mutually exclusive. Yes, we need men who are strong men, who are full of the Spirit, able to lead. We need churches where people work together and they've got one mind and their aim is to serve the Lord. Yes, we need these things. But if they are not all done in the strength of the Spirit of the Lord, 
they will achieve very, very little. The Apostle Paul knew about this truth. He says in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 3 and 4, and remember this is one of the greatest preachers of all time saying this, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, as able a man as Paul was. And he was certainly extremely able, as fine a preacher as Paul was, and he was certainly a very fine preacher. He knew that his words by themselves were weak, but in the power of the Spirit of God, they would be effective. And again, thinking of his own condition, in 2 Corinthians 12 and verses 8 and 9, thinking of what he called the thorn in his flesh, that physical ailment that he considered was, was hindering him, and he wanted out of the way. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, God delights in bringing power out of weakness. So when you come to call a pastor, you don't want to look for a man who necessarily is naturally strong and has all sorts of abilities and is highly able. You need a man, in a sense, who is weak, who knows his own weakness, and who relies on the power of the Holy Spirit for his strength in order to accomplish the work of God. A long, long time ago, St. Augustine said this. He said, when God is our strength, it is strength indeed. When our strength is our own, it is only weakness. Think for a moment. What can the Spirit do? If we say we need the Holy Spirit, what can the Spirit do? I'm just going to give you a whole range of verbs that the New Testament has to show what the Spirit can do. Not going into any one of them, but just gives you a whole load and let this kind of dwell on your mind and let it sink in. The Spirit, we are told, can do all of these things. All of these verbs we find in the New Testament. The Spirit encourages, comforts, strengthens, helps, convinces, convicts, leads, guides, teaches, commands, forbids, revives, intercedes, reveals Jesus, gives life, gives power, gives assurance of salvation, gives gifts, gives the words to speak, and more. What man or woman could ever do half of those things? No one. The Spirit is able to accomplish all of those things. So what are we saying? He is our greatest resource. As we rely on him, and as we ask him to do his work, he can do all those and many other things too. But how did it work out for Zerubbabel? How did the Spirit see to that work of the temple being rebuilt? Look at that promise in verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Do you know 
That temple was completed within four years. This is 520 BC. In the year 515 BC, they were celebrating the completed building of the temple and they were worshipping God in that temple. In just over four years, they built a temple that lasted for another 500 years. What happened? How did that take place? Well, it's something that only God could do. What happened was their enemies in Judah, in Jerusalem, were doing their best to stop that temple being built. And so they sent a letter to the new emperor, Darius. We can read about it in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. And they said, do you know, Darius, you've got these people here in Jerusalem. They're trying to build a temple to their God. They shouldn't be doing that, should they? Can you issue an edict to say they shouldn't be building it? And Darius, who was a wise man, he said, well, I want to see if there's anything in the archives about it. And his predecessor was Cyrus. And he looked back and Cyrus was the man who gave the edict that the Jews should return to their own land. So he sent his people off to search in the archives and they came across that edict and discovered that Cyrus had said the Jews should go back to their own land. They should rebuild the temple. All the things that have been taken to Babylon from the original temple should be returned. Any resources they needed should be given. Any money they needed should be provided. Any protection they needed from enemies should be granted to them. And when Darius saw that, he wrote back to those people and said, You've got it wrong. I hereby repeat the decree of Cyrus saying that temple should be rebuilt. And if they need any money, I'll give it. If they need bricks, I'll give it. If they need cement, I'll give it. Whatever they need, I will provide. And if any attack them, then my men will come in and protect them and make sure that they are safe. And in five years, less than five years, that temple was rebuilt. The work of the Spirit. What but the Spirit of God could have brought that about? Because when those workers who were so discouraged and were so ready to give up realized what was happening, that now the new emperor himself, Darius, is saying, I'll give you all the resources that you need, anything you want, and I'll protect you from your enemies. They had a mind, we read, to work. And they got down to work. And they all joined in. And they put brick upon brick upon brick. And within, as I say, under five years, it was completed. Not by might. Not by power, but by the Spirit and God working with his people and his people being obedient to him. What are we to do? Well, we're to do what the prophet Haggai told Zerubbabel to do because Zechariah had a contemporary. His name was Haggai. And Haggai said to Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And he said this, Be strong, O Zerubbabel, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Zerubbabel, get on and build that temple. And here's how you can do it, because I'm with you. My spirit is in your midst. So you need not fear. You can apply that to our work in building the church of God. Yes, the church of God is built through words, through actions, 
through prayer and so on. But we must know that the Lord is with us and it's being done in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we are co-workers with God. It's his work to build the church by his spirit and we have that great privilege and responsibility of being his co-workers. Think for a moment. Can you and I make anyone else a Christian? No, we can't. So how then can anyone become a Christian? Well, it's our responsibility to tell them the gospel, to show them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, to show them that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the grave, to show them the good news that Jesus died, that they can be forgiven and have peace with God. That is our responsibility. The person then needs to say sorry for their sins, ask for forgiveness, and trust in Jesus and believe him and commit themselves to him. But they can only do that as God is at work at the same time. God is opening their understanding and that God is enabling them by his spirit to believe. Isn't that the most glorious of partnerships to be in? We often hear, don't we, in the business world, oh, so-and-so has gone into partnership with so-and-so and they're seeking to build the business. We have the best partnership possible in the work of building the church. It is us and it is God himself by his spirit. God says, I will build my church. Whatever we do for the Lord is so much more effective in the power of the spirit. Remember, it is God's work. We are his co-workers with all of its privileges, all of its responsibilities, but he provides all the resources that we need. Just as Darius provides the resources for Zerubbabel to build the temple, so we have the Spirit who has all the resources that we may need to be engaged in the work of building the church. So we need to pray that we may be filled with the Spirit continually. It's not a one-off, daily, day in, day out. Lord, fill me today with your Spirit. Continually, like the oil flowing from the olive oil to the lampstands, continually, day and night flowing. Pray that God would use each of us in his strength to bring the light of Jesus into the world where he has placed us. It may be in our family, in our street, in our community, in our place of work, whatever it may be, that God by his spirit may use us, that his light may shine there. Pray that God would fill his servants who preach his word week in and week out with his spirit, that the word may be effective, because it's not by might, It's not by power. It is by my spirit, says the Lord. And when we grasp that truth, then discouragement becomes encouragement and small things can become great things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning and we know that we are very much living in a day of small things, but we pray we would not despise it. We pray, O Lord, that you would choose to act in our day. And out of small things, we know that great things can come. Father, we pray, 
We thank you for the great privilege of being co-workers with you. But Lord, we pray, may we be obedient and faithful. May we be doing those things you would have us to do. And Father, we pray, will you be at work building your church in this place, in our land, throughout the world in these days. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.